0: And welcome to the World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies, and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, and this week we're going to return to the topic of transatlantic relations. Last week we talked about what was going on in America, and this week, We want to talk about what Europeans can do to prepare a new transatlantic bargain. Rather than waiting for the White House to come to different European capitals and tell Europeans what to do, we're taking the advice of last week's podcasters and going to try and come up with what a new transatlantic bargain could look like. And to help us make sense of that, I have an all-star cast of ECFR program directors Down the line from Paris, we have Susie Dennison, who's the head of our European Power Programme. From Berlin, we have Yanka Ertl, the head of our Asia Programme, and Theo Murphy, the head of our Africa Programme. From Brussels, we have Julian Barnes-Dacey, who's the head of our Middle East and North Africa Programme. And also from Paris, anyway, we have Nicky Popescu, who's the head of our wider Europe Programme. So we now know that Joe Biden has won the US elections and will become the 46th President of the United States of America. I think we could hear a loud sigh of relief in many chancelleries and presidents' offices across Europe. But it's also clear that we're not simply going to go back to the pre-Trump world where America acts as the leader of an international liberal order, or a global policeman, and Europeans can be Robin to the American Batman. I think, as we discussed in the last podcast, that Washington is increasingly going to look for a partner in global affairs rather than a collection of needy children who compete for attention and take no responsibility for their own welfare. So if Europe is going to be that responsible partner, what should it offer to a Biden administration? What should it ask for in the different policy areas that we're talking about? We're going to try and come at this through a number of different angles. We're going to talk about trade and China with Juncker. We're going to talk about what could be done, the level of multilateralism on, cl- on the climate and health and other kind of issues around that. Third topic will be to talk about Russia, and what that means for NATO as well. The fourth topic, I think, will be the, the Middle East and North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa as well. And then if we have time, we might talk a bit about how to get to this offer, what the EU needs to do to make sure that it can show some coherence to, uh, to our friends in Washington. Why don't we start with the trade and China issues then, which are closely linked to each other? And maybe, Yanka, you can tell us what, what should Europeans offer in this area? What should they ask for from Biden administration?
1: Thanks, Mark. So I think from all the issues that are on the kind of immediate to talk to the Europeans about list uh, that the Biden administration has, China certainly ranks pretty high. Europe's position on China has moved quite a bit over the last four years of the Trump administration, and it is a crucial partner for the US in kind of tackling the new China agenda that is very much about trade, tech and climate um, and has moved quite a bit over the past few years as well. This will definitely not be all smooth sailing. Whether the Europeans will really be willing to kind of fully jump into a US agenda on this will very much depend on what that agenda exactly looks like. Um, And especially for Germany or other countries that have very close relations to Beijing as well, it will be a very much of a, a balancing act to do that. So it will very much depend On how exactly the priorities of the Biden administration will evolve on these issues and how they will handle legacy issues such as uh, semiconductors or Huawei or the TikTok question. We're not expecting any major shifts in the overall China policy, but the nuances on this end matter quite a bit. And in this regard, alliances are very, very crucial. So, whereas for China, it's relatively Indifferent, or China can be really indifferent about um, who is in the White House in the end. The option of greater transatlantic coordination makes it a very uncomfortable choice for China at this point. So Europe can actually really bring a lot to the table and reinforce kind of a U.S. agenda that puts more pressure on China to move on reciprocity, market access, and all the issues that are of concern to the United States. But that simultaneously also reinforces Europe's new China agenda. Um, And so I think this is one of the few areas in which there's a lot to gain, very mutually beneficial cooperation possible if Europe is actually willing
0: to move. So... Janka, what do Europeans want from Americans? You said about what, what Americans can offer to Europeans, but what do we want them to do differently apart from the obvious things of not putting tariffs on, on European products for national security reasons?
1: No, I think pretty much. I mean, the Europeans are having a very, very similar agenda when it comes to China and trade questions to the American agenda. And I do think that it has been inhibited by the Trump administration to really pool that capacity and to pool the resources that we have available because of the disconnect on the transit front. This is the one area where even over the past four years, Europeans have continuously said, well, we actually agree on the analysis, we don't agree on the measures. I think what we can now have to come up with is to agree on the measures."
0: But what kind of measures would Europeans want the US to adopt now, which they weren't adopting before?
1: So what the Europeans would want um, on the China front is to kind of have the United States reinforce a multilateral trade agenda, to go away from kind of bilateral deal making, but to kind of jointly talk um, to China and try to um, emphasise the, the big contentious issues, market access, market distorting practices, um, and cooperation in third countries. So these are the areas that can be tackled. Whether that is actually going to take place within the WTO, yes, that's one of the talking points, super important, reform the WTO. Whether that is a feasible option or whether we have to find other avenues remains to be seen.
0: Okay, so that you've taken us right into the second topic, which is multilateralism. Susie, what do you think the European demands will be? We've heard from the Biden team that he's going to rejoin the Paris climate deal. He's going to try and find a a diplomatic way of dealing with Iran, which we'll talk about probably later with with MENA. But what do you think the European offer on multilateralism should be? Well, I
2: think on multilateral questions and particularly the sort of the big challenges on European and American plates around climate and global health, the Europeans are very excited about the potential of the return of US leadership um, on these areas. But I think it's still worth sounding a few notes of caution on kind of what this represents for Europe, and particularly, I guess, on the climate side. So as you said, Biden said that kind of from day one, uh, his administration is going to re-engage with the Paris deal. But this comes at a time when clearly the next year is going to be crucial for Europe in delivering its green deal. And it's, it's a very sort of politically divisive question within the EU already. We've now got the Next Generation EU agreement on the financing for the next budgetary period, which is a lot less ambitious on the green front than some of the the climate champions wanted. There's a big legislative package expected in summer next year on the European side. And now that the US is sort of back in the the conversation about delivering this, I think the the kind of the US moves on this front are going to matter a lot more to the European conversation about how far they should go and the impact of environmental measures on European competitiveness. So, we, you know, we know that although Biden is kind of saying that he's going to reconnect with the international system on this front, he's no climate champion himself, and he's got a difficult set of interests to balance in the, in the US. So I think there is a risk of the kind of the US re-engagement sort of potentially levelling down the ambition in Europe, now that Europe's not on its own anymore in terms of taking this forward. And then just as, I guess, a second quick point about the, the sort of the optics of working with the US on, on the climate question in Europe... Which is that Biden kind of coming in on a white horse to, to save the Paris deal isn't necessarily a good look for Europeans when we can kind of see in the public opinion surveying we've been doing that the climate challenge is one area where Europeans want more Europe. They kind of see potential for Europe to, to fill the gap in leadership on the global stage. So I think Europeans kind of need the leadership need to think carefully about how they engage with the US on this multilateral level and, and 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 it needs to be clear that this is the US and um, EU taking this forward rather than just the EU's riding American coattails.
0: So... Why don't we, um, talking of American coattails, why don't we switch to this whole question of Russia and and some of the security threats? Niku, the EU has had a delicate balance in its Russia policy, both trying to reassure and accommodate states that feel the the most afraid of Russian threats and those who have been wanting more dialogue. A Biden administration certainly looks more hostile to Russia than the Trump administration did, and in in that sense will be maybe more uh, aligned with with some EU member states. But at the same time, in fact, some of the most fearful countries of Russia seem to like Trump a lot because he was investing a lot in American troops in in Eastern Europe. How do you see a transatlantic bargain? What should we uh, ask for? What should we offer?
3: What is obvious to me is that... There's a longer term trend in US policy uh, well before Trump, where there is, of course, less of an interest and desire to pay to micromanage the situation in, in Eastern Europe and the relationship with Russia. That's, of course, the repositioning to deal with Asia. But if you look at the specifics of this US approach to Eastern Europe, in reality, if you put Trump's Twitter feed aside, there was quite a good amount of uh, continuity uh, between Obama and Trump. Both wanted less of a U.S. presence in Eastern European security affairs. We will see what happens now under Biden, but I think that's a long-term trend. And that, of course, that trend raises the new dilemmas for the Europeans. And one of the sub-dilemmas of a bigger dilemma is, of course, the fact that the main question that is logically addressed to the Europeans every time there's a new war in the European neighbourhood is what is Europe going to do about it, but more critically and more increasingly why no one even bothers to hear what the Europeans have to say on the latest escalation of the situation, be it in Libya, be it in Syria, and lately in Nagorno-Karabakh. And that is partly also because the Europeans have made the choice in the last 10-15 years not to really deal with security issues in in their own neighbourhood. Of course, the Europeans will always be have been willing to invest in socio-economic development, post-conflict reconstruction. There have been efforts on on mediation in Nagorno-Karabakh some 15 years ago over South Ossetia and Abkhazia. They didn't work well. Uh, always. But what the Europeans have made the decision to not really do is to engage in some kind of sustained dialogue and partnerships with the defense ministries, the intelligence services, the cyber security agencies of Europe's eastern partners. And that is, of course, a big gap, if you want, in, uh, which minimizes dramatically European power and European relevance is this age where an increasing number of Europe's neighbors, including Russia and Turkey, are willing to use military force to promote their interests. Now, if you want to bring it to what is the European offer to Biden, I would say that one of the most important offers uh, the Europeans can do is to start playing and start developing security partnerships with the EU's neighbours, with Ukraine, with Moldova, with Georgia, with countries to the south and Africa. And luckily, ECFR has just published a great report on how to do just that. Exactly. All great powers have strategic and security partnership with other states. And Europe has made the choice not to do that. And we have recently published this paper where we give some 30 concrete recommendations as to how the European Union can boost its security partnerships with its neighbours. And that would be a great way to contribute to a more f- a fairer burden sharing, not just when it comes to defence spending in NATO, but in also the way the Americans and the Europeans need to help and invest more in stabilising Europe's neighbourhood.
0: Thanks a lot for that, Niku. The theme of burden sharing and helping the US deleverage came up when we were talking to Niku about the eastern neighbourhood. But I think the area where it's been most politically sensitive has been the forever wars in the Middle East. So maybe we should go to, to Middle East next. And then and we can also look at Africa, both North and, and Sub-Saharan. Julian, why don't you tell us what a European offer for the MENA region should look like?
4: I think that the starting point here is to acknowledge that the Middle East and North Africa is not going to be a priority for the Biden administration. They've, they've talked about wanting to get out advisors to Biden have made it clear that it's not going to be a priority. And for a Europe that needs to be concerned by stability in the Middle East, that for a Europe that, that sees threats of terrorism, challenges of migration, you know, that, that's going to create a, a need for, for Europeans to step up. So I think first and foremost, this is about Europeans saying to themselves, Biden is not going to come marching back in. The US is not going to pick up where it may have left off a few administrations ago. And we can't look to Biden to solve our problems. This is something we're going to have to solve. So I think that's the bottom line starting point. There will be some areas of of clear American stepped up engagement and more constructive positioning towards the region that, of course, Europeans will want to encourage and pick up on. One is obviously the nuclear deal and uh, resumption of that, particularly between the Americans and and the Iranians, and both of them coming back to compliance. That's something the Europeans have been looking to salvage over the last four years. The other big thing is is just moving away from the madness of the last four years, Trump's maximum pressure campaign, the sense that an escalation of conflict was always around the corner, and, and moving instead towards a path of diplomacy to solve regional conflicts. So I think those are the asks. What does Europe want of the US? They want the nuclear deal and they want regional diplomacy rather than escalation and, and uncertainty and, and the risk of, of conflict. What Europeans need to bring to the table, I think, is a willingness to pick up some of the slack. Um, the Americans are not gonna own this in a way they might've done in the past, as I just said. And they are going to want their partners to, to assist them if they are going to look to, to create diplomatic deals, if they are going to look to deleverage their own position in the region. So I think that means the Europeans, along the lines of what Niku was saying in terms of picking up security responsibilities, I don't think that's necessarily about security relationships with the regions, but helping the Americans manage some of their own departures, whether it's from Iraq or northeastern Syria, Europeans showing a greater willingness to act on the ground, accompanying that with stepped-up stabilization support, putting their money where their mouth is, so to speak. The other thing where I think Europeans need to make an offer is actually to lead to the Americans, is actually to lead on some of that diplomacy. I mean, maybe the Americans will concentrate on the nuclear deal, but they probably won't have much bandwidth to do much else. So I think Europeans need to be looking to set that diplomatic agenda that they so want. They need to be looking to create avenues for progress in Yemen, in Iraq and elsewhere. They need to look to create a framework for dialogue in the Gulf. And they need to look at places like Libya and actually communicate to the Americans, look, this is our backyard and we can solve this on ourselves we're not going to lean on you. we're not going to depend on you to to come rolling in to to sort out our problems for us.
0: Europeans are going
4: to solve Libya anytime soon. I mean most
0: well, of the well, there's,
4: well, there's been you know there's been some progress on that actually i mean the the the, 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 the recent u n political breakthrough there has created some new momentum. The Germans and others were quite pivotal to that. Actually, there is a window of opportunity now, the first time in quite a while that you seem to have a shift of momentum. The Europeans need to make sure that they do everything they can to take that forward, to seize the opportunity, to pressure, to work with, to coerce, regional states from from some of their meddling. They should not look now to the Americans to sort this problem out. They should look to the Americans to help them on Iran and elsewhere in the region. Libya should be a a European issue that Europeans can get their act together to solve. And that needs European coherence. It needs European determination. It means Europeans putting resources on the table. But this is Europe's neighborhood, not the American neighborhood. So ultimately, it's going to have to lie in our responsibility, given that the Americans are just not going to come marching back in. Okay, so if we
0: go a bit further south, Theo, where does Africa fit in the uh, idea of a transatlantic bargain?
5: I think Africa is an interesting case because although Europe's engagement is world leading in different headings, it's a bit diffuse and a little bit hard to sort of grip. It's things like development assistance, budgetary support, you know, there, at Europe's at the At the top of the class, but it's difficult to kind of bundle that up and commodify it and then go over to Washington and say, let's do a deal around this. Where can we meet? That being said, I do think that there's two areas for potential confluence. The first is around the COVID vaccine. The way this issue is shaping up globally, there's a limited multilateral effort, which is there uh, to be at the disposal of the entire world. But the amount of that is going to be fairly small. Then wealthy countries are pursuing it individually, and they are going to have enough to take care of their populations, but also an excess, which, if you look at this kind of asymmetry between supply and demand with the the developing world, this can turn into quite interesting and valuable political currency. What I think the U.S. and Europe can, can meet on is in providing more support to that multilateral piece of the puzzle. And the idea there is is to do it, you know, one, because it's the right thing to do, it's a global good and so on, but two, there's also an interest-based reason, which is to say the stronger the multilateral pillar that is, the more it supplies, the less value this other vaccine currency has. And that's important in Africa because we can imagine um, external powers who are trying to get a bigger piece of the pie in Africa could very well arrange some kind of a quid pro quo around the vaccine. And I think the best thing to do is to deflate that currency, to take the potency out of it and take that kind of very harsh political arithmetic out of the equation. The second thing where Europe and the U.S. come together is that they, they look with a bit of a jaundiced eye um, at the unorthodox Chinese financing um, that is making major inroads into Africa. This model of Chinese financing you know, fuses things together, which we keep apart in Europe, public, private, development, commercial. And it leads to political benefit, uh, but also private sector and commercial benefit for China. The U.S. has tried to counter this with its own mini version, but they're not going to be able to reach the scale of of the Chinese. Europe has also been grappling with this. And in Europe, there's other particular considerations. There's OECD guidelines for how this kind of financing should be applied and how it shouldn't be. I know that the U.S. and Europe can't just pool their resources and try to sort of match China in terms of quantity and scale. But what I think Europe could put on the table is an idea of creating a sort of common framework of principles around how both their their financing would be put into play in Africa. And this might create a, a critical mass of quality, if you will, versus the overwhelming quantity that's coming from the Chinese side. And that could have a, a quite interesting and, and be quite impactful, I think, in the African context.
0: So- We have a full agenda. We still have to wait for a few legal challenges to work their way through the system. And then there are a couple of months when Donald Trump is still in the White House before any of these ideas that you've laid out become operationalized. Before that happens, there is going to be quite a big challenge of of trying to get Europeans to work together in the past The most common pattern has been one of competitive bilateralism, people rushing to speak to the Americans first. There was a bit of that when Joe Biden was calling around European leaders, certainly in London, they were very proud to uh, have been called up before anybody else in Europe. Maybe just to end with Susie, because you've been looking at all the reactions to different issues through in in the different member states from the european power program what kind of hopes do you think there are going to be of getting europeans working together on on developing this i mean i think we'll probably do another podcast on that we had last week from the some of the heads of our national offices about how much disunity there was but i wonder how how you're feeling about that at the moment
3: Susan.
6: Yeah, I mean, I've been quite struck in talking, as I'm sure the rest of you have been over the last week, to various um, analysts and journalists in the US about kind of how the US elections look from a European perspective, by this sense that that Europeans must be quite kind of unnerved by the level of division within America at the moment that's been exposed around these elections. And I've been sort of quite struck that, that actually what these elections have shown us as, as, as Europeans um, is, is that we're now quite alike in the sense that um, we can see very clearly the power of both the kind of the Biden narrative about the importance of international engagement um, in solving the problems in front of us and the, the Trump narrative about um, the importance of kind of national sovereignty in, in leading the charge. And and so I think um, that we're on the same page in Europe, both in terms of the kind of the differences between different um, member states. And as you said, Mark, you know, the the, the extent to which for for some, particularly the kind of the larger Western dominant powers, if you like, within the EU, are very excited about the potential um, of, of working with the Biden administration. And and then on the other hand, other other states who who are much more kind of wary about the fact that the Biden narrative um, seems to have won won through this time around. And so I think this is really where the tension is going to be for Europeans in terms of working out uh, what to do um, in the transatlantic relationship going forward is is showing that sort of building European power now is not just about being able to sort of on the areas where we have a clear common agenda with the US, but it's also about um, showing that we can kind of still make progress on the areas where we have differences. And I think it it will be that that sort of shows um, both that the transatlantic um, relationship is an incredible tool for us as Europeans, but also that the European project has it as a kind of a value and impact in its own right.
0: Okay, well, we're going to come back to those topics again i'm sure many times over the next few weeks we will be producing lots more analysis on our website about how a biden administration and europeans can work together in all the different regions that we've talked about and we'll have a a sort of overarching piece which tries to come up almost with a manifesto for a new atlanticism which brings this grand bargain together in the next couple of weeks so look out on our website at ecfr.eu slash podcasts for all of that. But we have one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Niku, what's on your bookshelf at the moment?
3: Given that it's the week when Nagorno-Karabakh stole the headlines, I thought that I would use some older books from my bookshelf rather than something I read. But two of my favourite books about Nagorno-Karabakh or related to Armenia and Azerbaijan would be the story of Monte Melkonian. It's a book called My Brother's Road, and that's an American-Armenian from California who went to fight in the Lebanese war in in some Armenian units and then in Palestinian units and ended up being killed in the war in Nagorno-Karabakh in the early 90s. And the second book is a Nazeri writer from 100 years ago called Mohamed Asad bek and he wrote a very interesting book called Blood and Oil in the East about Azerbaijan 100 and something years ago.
0: Great. Yanka, what's on your bookshelf at the moment?
1: I'm currently reading or finishing a book by Michelle Dean called Sharp and the subtitle is The Women Who Made an Art of Having an Opinion and maybe I'll just leave it at that.
0: (laughs) That sounds very cool. So, Julian, what's on your bookshelf?
4: I have just picked up a new book on Pakistan, The Nine Lives of Pakistan, by New York Times journalist Declan Walsh, who spent a good decade in the country. And uh, Pakistan is a place I kind of travelled around a bit um, a, f- a few years back, and um, I, I'm, I, I guess it's, a, it's a, a series of dispatches from on the ground from, from a country that kind of sits at at the heart of so much of, of what is going on between the Middle East and Asia.
0: Fantastic. Theo? Well, last time we talked,
5: I regaled you with my children's reading list, but today some adult literature. I'm reading um, Africa First, which is by the excellent Dr. Yaki Siliers, and he basically makes an an argument for Africa's inevitable rise based on the demographic dividend basically saying the ratio between young working able people to their dependents either old or young younger will will make Africa indomitable it's just a matter of time
0: so optimistic okay and Susie why don't you have the last word
2: I will stick with the topic of the day and recommend a piece by William Davis in this week's Guardian about when elections deliver revenge more than representation, looking at the US elections and what that means for liberal democracies. And this draws on his most recent book, which is called uh, This Is Not Normal.
0: Great. Well, we'll put out links to all the publications we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu. If you've enjoyed listening to us, do let other people know about it. We'd be really, really grateful. We can't tell you how grateful we'd be if you could go to the platform you've used to download this podcast and give us a positive rating and a five-star review. Or maybe it's the other way around. But for now, from Janka Ertler, Susie Dennison... Nico Popescu, Julian Barnes-Dacey, Theo Murphy, and myself, Mark Leonard. It's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Lucy Halpentier, and our editor is Marlene Riedel.